1: Enjoy the show. Today we are talking to Will Terry, who's been a freelance illustrator for 23 years. After finishing his BFA project at BYU, he began working for magazines and newspapers not far from where he grew up in Washington, D.C. His early clients include publications such as Time, Money, Wall Street Journal and Mastercard. He has illustrated about 30 children's books for many of the top publishers, including Random House, Scholastic and Penguin. He has created several indie books that have sold tens of thousands of copies. He also co-owns svslearn.com, online illustration classes for children's book illustrators, selling in over 80 countries. We look forward to finding out more. <music>
0: it's really, really good to have you on, Will. We're really, really grateful for you coming on and talking to us today. Um, You've been highly successful in your career, but I want to go back to when you were at school because you thought that you'd never amount to anything. Can you tell us about your life at school and how you went from having such a low self-esteem to being the success you are today?
2: Yeah, sure. I, I actually like talking about this because I've had a lot of students who I've Feel have gone through the same kind of uh, emotional uh, journey, and you know, I, I I love the idea of helping others with the, the, some the problems that they're going through. So for me, it was, you know, I really, I just really didn't do well in academics. I had a, I, I think today I would have been diagnosed with you know ADD or ADHD. Um, I just, you know. I would sit in class and my mind would wander and I, and, you know, the teachers would, would uh, be giving their lecture. I knew I was going to be tested on it. I knew there was going to be a quiz and yet I still just couldn't pay attention. And um, it was really frustrating for my parents because they were both, you know, high academic achievers, master's degree. And my dad working on a PhD at the time and they just couldn't understand me. And so when I got to college and, you know, here I am, I'm, I, I knew I was you know I barely got into college by the way, and the college that I went to at BYU, um, there's no way I could have could get in there today with my GPA, just no way. Uh, back then, I, I, they made some accommodations and I I got in there, um, and then I started to just be really average in my in my art classes, and that was because I basically. I I thought I knew what they wanted, but I wasn't really understanding what they wanted. And so I wasn't able to demonstrate that I was trying to overachieve in my art classes and my results weren't showing and they were grading on results, not on effort. And, um, and so, and I just couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand why I was just doing so poorly and they couldn't, you know, they couldn't, there was a portfolio review coming up and, and, uh, you know, I barely got in and I got let in on probation into the, the BFA program. And that really lit a fire under me because I thought, okay, I'm not good at anything else. <laughs> I'm barely good at this art thing. And so I need to work really, really hard. And it was probably the best thing for me to hear at the time for me to get let in on probation and to have basically, you know, out of 20 students. I was able to see. Okay, there's me and another guy on probation. So I'm, I'm, I'm at maybe at the bottom or the second to the bottom. But now I know where my teachers see me, and, um, and that was a huge motiva- motivator for me to uh, just try to outwork everybody else because I was like, well, I, I'm now on the bottom, and a- after having been a teacher at the university level for almost a decade, uh, I. Realize that even though it's hard for me to tell people where I see them when I'm critiquing their portfolios or their work, the honesty is the best policy. Because when you you know if you sugarcoat something, if you if you lead someone on, they're they might not work as hard as they need to.
1: So can I I just ask like you said um, you were on probation, yeah. Um. So how did you improve? Because before you said you couldn't pay attention, you were struggling. So. What suddenly made it so you could focus, or, or what was it you changed?
2: Uh, I started listening to what my teachers were were asking for more, um, and realized that a lot of my preconceptions about art and about creating images were wrong. Uh, my values were were misplaced, <laughs> and specifically, um, it, it's it's hard to get, hard to to uh, put into words but basically I was over illustrating everything um, you know and, and the essence of good design is refinement um, and simplicity you know so you think of you know if you're I'm an Apple product guy <laughs> so I love the iPhone you know but you know and you can you can love or hate the iPhone but Apple really did revolutionize the the way that we interact with technology in the touch, touch screen area right so whether you're Android or Apple, the phones basically look and feel the same, and that was really from reducing all these complicated buttons. I remember having some of the first cell phones, and there were buttons everywhere, and you had to memorize what those buttons did. And I and I thought this is just a bad system. You know, I have to become an expert on this phone, and then two years later, there I'm gonna have a totally different phone. And this is this is I knew it wasn't good design. And then the, the iPhone came out, where it was the buttons are reconfigurable for every app that you're in. I'm like, that makes so much more sense. Um, so that was kind of the problem that I was having was I was overcomplicating all of my art. I was, I was, uh, just getting lost in the weeds and, and not understanding how to edit out for simplicity. And, and, and that's when I really actually started to focus on this thing called design, um, which, it went from being one of my weakest points to one of my strengths because I realized that drawing is different than design design is different than, than drawing. And I, I was focused on, you know, just drawing everything and drawing details everywhere when really I needed to um, look at the overall picture. And I finally got a few instructors that were able to communicate that to me in a way that really was eye opening. And that's one of the things that I do. Um, when I when I teach, you know, in a college situation, or if I teach for our online school, SBS, is that's what I, that's my emphasis. That's, I feel like that's my little um, my my little area of where I can really contribute is is helping people understand that yeah, you might have really good drawing skills, but if you if you don't know how to design the, the whole image, you're you you're really missing um, at least half of the, the, the picture.
1: So can you actually remember one piece of work that was a real turning point that you sort of drew and you thought you know I'm getting there with that?
2: Yeah, and it was it was a um, it was a, a an illustration for the poem Al and the Pussycat. I don't know if you know oh, yeah. that poem, and uh, and I it was one of the first images that I you know I worked with my instructor and and we designed it you know and I have to give him a lot of credit Richard Hull, um, who really helped me with the design of that and you know but the the praise that i got from both the teachers and the students i was like it, you know and every my teachers were like you did this you know and but it was that it was that basically surrendering to the process and 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 basically trying you know being humble and saying you know, i can't do this alone i'm going to need help and going back to the teacher and the teacher would do a draw over and show me what alterations they would he would make and then and then I would make some changes and then go back. And I think we worked on that sketch, you know, back and forth, three or four times before I actually started to refine the drawing and then, and then finally paint it. And it was my, you know, I call them pinnacle pieces where, you know, you have a piece that, that you do that's better than all of your other body of work. And it might even be, um, you know, two or three levels above. And then for the next year or two, you, you, you struggle to get back up to that level. And then finally, you get another breakout piece that's better than than that and all the other ones and and yeah. And so that was that was kind of the turning point for me. I still remember. I still have that painting. And uh, yeah, that was that was basically the one that gave me the confidence to know that wow, I can do this. And I was because I, you know, I impressed all the the students in the class. You know, they're like, wow, you're 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 one of us now. You know. <laughs>
0: Speaking of cats, I saw a, um, your Kickstarter video, and you were speaking about the cat that couldn't read, uh-huh. um, and I I loved that. I think that whole concept was brilliant. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, well, that was and that was a it was a failed Kickstarter, so it was really good in that. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that you learn more from your failures than from your successes, and that your failure finish
0: for that. Yeah, <laughs> your,
2: your failures actually are more valuable, even at, though at the time you want to die, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: but they but they end up um, changing your life and they end up changing the way you think in such profound and, and positive ways that you're able to do greater things in the future and i mean uh, we learn through failure right i mean like that's that's from day one when we when we try to learn how to walk we do something we fall down we get hurt so we feel the pain and then we we, we'd say, I don't want to, whatever it was that I just did, I don't want to do that again. And we try to try something different. And I think we need those wake-ups. So what was the original question again? I
0: <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, your, your cat, I was really oh, yeah, the, the story of the cat that couldn't read, and, and that whole thing was really designed, wasn't it, to help um, children that really didn't like to read and encourage it?
2: It was, because I was, I was, they call them reluctant yeah. readers now. <laughs> I hated reading, <laughs> so I was I was beyond reluctant at the time. And I love reading today. Um, I actually learned to read and write after school more than in school. I mean, I could read in school, but my comprehension was really low. Um, now you know, I, I really enjoy reading uh, when I get the chance because uh, I find. Stuff that I really care about, and it's not, uh, you know, I think that I think that's one of the challenges for school teachers is to find what their kids are interested in. Um, But the the I Hate Reading project was really based on, yeah, like you said, it was it was about me and it was about helping um, kids understand. I I wanted I wanted reluctant I wanted teachers and parents who had reluctant readers to see the title and go, Oh, my kid needs to read this because here's a here's a character that hates reading. Also, so you'll you'll identify with this character right off the bat. Unfortunately, it didn't fund there's a lot of lessons and I don't know if we want to go into the details on on that, but be, in, in a nutshell, it was people don't buy apps or don't support apps typically on Kickstarter or crowdfunding sites. Um, people have you know this, this perception of apps being free. So I think that was the biggest hurdle that I had, but there was a lot of other little problems that I learned. Which actually, again, those failures helped me launch the successful Kickstarter that I did. The second one, um, which was the little book of superhero characters and and pop culture characters.
0: But moving on to 1997, was it, when you published your first book, Pizza Pat? And Uh it it sold over half a million copies. And that's what I've read. Um, You Uh must have been really really surprised by those numbers for a first book so what uh, what was it about that book then that made it so successful do you think
2: I wish I could say that I had a lot to do with the success of that I think uh I and, and I would make for a better story if I could if, if I did <laughs> but basically I think what it was um was number one. It, it's a, it's it's one of the the readers um, that they send home. They call them they call them readers in the industry, and they're um, learn how to read books. So they're the little paperback, twenty um, four page books that um, elementary or primary school children um, use to learn to read. And one of the reasons why the, the volume and the numbers are so high on those books is that they um, sell them through the what they call the book club which is the, the little, um, uh, the little pamphlet they send home with kids to, to give to their parents to order books. Um, and, you know, so the teachers are promoting it in their classroom. They're like, okay, so here's, you're going to take this home, show your parents, pick out some books. We want you to read these at home. So it's, it's kind of like the marketing, you know, the, the publishing world has really infiltrated the schools and and in a good way. I mean, they're like kids need to learn how to read. I think it's a it's a case where um, the private sector and the public sector really work well together, um, and um, so a lot of those books in those series do really well. I think that one did particularly well because it was different. Um, there, I don't think there was a, a a little reader about pizza at the time. I think <laughs> so. <laughs> But it, was, it was fun. It was really fun to work on and it was it was the, uh, I had actually turned that book down um, two, two or three times because I didn't, at that time I didn't identify myself as being a children's book illustrator and wow. didn't really, and I was making really good money doing advertising illustration and editorial illustration and it was a substantial pay cut to get the advance to do that book and so I was looking at it purely monetarily and then my agent at the time said, "She kept telling me these books can actually do really well. Like you can really make up a lot in royalties." And uh, you know, you hear you hear those kinds of stories, and you kind of roll your eyes. And, um, but financially, I'm really glad that I <laughs> that I took that one because it really paid off.
1: So, when you did that book, I assume you were using acrylic. Still, you were still working by hand.
2: Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So, so you didn't swap, was it 2010 you swapped to digital?
2: Yeah, you guys have done That's your right.
1: homework. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you find that transition? Was it quite awkward and what, what were you using, what software and how are you working?
2: Yeah, so I I had wanted to switch to digital just because I had known how many people were were successfully making the switch and I knew that it was making their lives easier. And I was using Photoshop, on a regular basis to edit my images after I, so I would I would paint in acrylic and then I'd get a scan of it. And then I might make a little alteration or I would just get the scans and do a little color correcting and then send them off to the to the publisher. So I was familiar with Photoshop enough to know that it would just be easier to, to start there and finish there. And my prep time for getting uh, paintings ready was like it, it, let's say I was doing a children's book, it would take me uh, a couple days just to get the 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 illustration boards or, pa- or paper ready to go to paint. So I, I was like two days of just prep work, maybe three even. Um, so I, I knew that uh, that all that time would would go. You know, I would get all that time back if I started working digital. And um, so I wanted to switch for a long time, but then. I didn't know how to do my style. I didn't, I, I saw a lot of illustrators that would switch and I didn't like their digital look. It, it changed enough to where it was like, uh, I miss your, your old look. So I didn't, I didn't want that. So for about five years, I was searching for someone to help me uh, make the transfer. And, and, it, and it ended up being one of my uh, former students who actually helped me, who said, I know how to do your style. And I was very skeptical, but there's, um, there are tools that allow you to um, treat the. It's hard to explain in words, but basically, um, with, with using the texture palette in Photoshop, it allows you to um, paint on top of, or on top, or in the middle, or on the bottom of a texture. If that makes any sense, like you can dry brush. Like that, that's that's my the the technique that I had been using in acrylics is. Is dry brushing with the acrylic. So you basically, after you get your underpainting in and um, your values and stuff, then as you light, you know, add the lights to the to the painting, you're you're knocking off almost all the paint on your brushes, and you're just basically rubbing the top of the texture. Um, I would create a texture on the paper with a gel medium. And then you and then you uh just by lightly rubbing, you're you're just painting on the tops of the texture. And I didn't think that was possible in Photoshop. But anyway, this student um, helped me understand how to do it and showed me how to do it. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, this is this is perfect. This is exactly what I wanted. And then the, the learning curve really was, um, I, I wish that I had had somebody tell me that uh, the tablet, the you know, like the Intuos, like a Wacom tablet, there's a lot of different tablets, but like a, the most common one is probably the Wacom into his tablet versus the Wacom Cintiq monitor, where you know one you're drawing on the tablet and looking up at your screen, the other one you're the Cintiq you're you're drawing on the monitor itself, and you're so you're seeing exactly what you're getting. Um, and I wish someone had told me how much easier it is to draw on directly on the monitor. Now the price is very you know a lot. It's like you know, ten times more expensive to to get this antique motor, so price matters. But I spent the first couple years working on that in Intuos, and I never felt like I had full control. And if I look at some of the work that I did during that, those two years, it's it's blurry because I didn't have the control to to work the details because I didn't have the motor control with my hands. So for anyone looking to make a switch, I would say. You know, it's, it's it's apples and oranges to compare the tablet to the Cintiq monitor to the actual tablet monitor. Um, and there's good knockoffs. Huion, makes some. Um, Unova makes some. Um, they're 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 decent. They're definitely not as good as the the Cadillac is the is the Wacom Cintiq monitor. But as soon as I got the Cintiq, you know, two or three years after I had been uh, working on the Intuos, I there was no. There was, no, um, there was no learning curve. And I don't think there would have been any learning curve if I had gone directly to the Cintiq. Because it's, it's really just like, you know, you, you're just drawing. <laughs> you know, you're just drawing and painting right there.
1: How do you find the Cintiq compared to something like the iPad?
2: So I, I actually use the iPad uh, Pro uh, mostly for all of my drawings now and only because I can take it anywhere. So my my method is I'll I'll uh, I'll do all my drawings uh, on the iPad Pro and then I do all my color in Photoshop on the Cintiq and I feel really blessed to be able to have that much technology. Um, I know that for students starting out, it's a lot of them will ask me like, if you had to choose, which one would you go with, the iPad or the Cintiq? And um, you know, they, they both have distinct advantages. I probably would go with the Cintiq with Photoshop just because it would give me overall, like, like all control. Whereas um, the iPad by itself, um, I don't feel like you have as much control and your, your, um, your image file size is, it, it's hard sometimes to work on the really huge files um, on the iPad.
0: I've only been um, trying out the iPad quite recently in the last few months and uh, it's Procreate is the one that I've sort of got my app and I find it really strange because the pencil kind of, it's almost like skating on ice. I don't feel like I have the control that I have on, you know, on paper. So I was wondering, do you still do the traditional kind of painting as well? Do you have a preference between the two for your own personal work?
2: I... So that's a, that's a great question so if I might I might just address the what you were talking about really quickly on the, the iPad the, the slick glass feeling yeah and yeah. so a lot of a lot of people will put a like a matte cover these they sell covers that you can like a mm. like a like a sticky backed cover that you can put on that's got like more of a toothy paper feel and I was using those for a while because I had the same issue that, that you did um, but the, I found that what happens is after a while, you know, you're drawing in the same – you usually draw in the middle. And so whenever your pencil ventures out of the middle of the iPad surface, you get more tooth because you've worn out the middle more. Yeah. And that would affect my drawing. And so the, the, for me to solve that problem is basically I wear a glove, the, the glove, and just slide my hand, my, my whole my, – the, the, the uh, butt of my hand – or the heel. Oh,
0: I see. That's a good idea. Yeah.
2: So it it doesn't because when uh, when you when you anchor your the butt of your hand against the side or on the screen itself, it feels so glassy and slippery that I it doesn't feel as nice as the the resistance you get with paper. But if you're moving your you're drawing more from your shoulder, I feel like it it doesn't affect you as much. But in my perfect world, the glass would have more tooth to it
0: <laughs> yeah and it
2: wouldn't yeah. wear out um so. so what is
0: your preference then between the two yeah if you so
2: as far as it. like I love painting I love working with paint um and I love having an original um I just basically decided that for now with my illustration work I'm just going to work digitally because the advantages are too great not to oh. um and and I'm not saying that that doesn't work for For everyone, because like, so I I know artists like, you know, like uh, Jake here, who um, he does a lot of original work um, with traditional mediums just because for him, a huge percentage of his income comes from selling the original. And so it's worth any um, downside to working that way. And I think also there's advantages. I think he probably likes a lot of the happy accidents you get. Um, he probably also, I I know he's talked about this before too, um, the fact that you have to make commitments and you have to be more careful and and more precise working traditionally. And I think that, that, um, that probably, that might be an area that I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I could, to be honest, that might be an area of my brain that's in atrophy right now, you know, um, because I'm not forcing myself to do that as much in the future. I see myself uh, going back to paint when I can afford the time um, and and doing other experiments in that direction because I really do love painting. Um, So just I I look at this as kind of a temporary time right now.
1: You mentioned before that you worked in editorial design and then you switched to children's illustration. Uh So how and why did you make that switch?
2: Yeah, so... a a, a lot of things were happening at that time this was we're talking about mid 90s to late 90s and um so and looking back it's easy to get a a good picture from above now on on all the moving parts but the illustration world was being affected by um, you could say globalization the internet uh, photoshop so technology and then also stock illustration all at the same time. And so what was happening is, um, you know, because of technology, because of um, the internet and and bandwidth, uh, illustrators from all over the world were able to compete in U.S. markets and U.S. uh, illustrators were able to compete in foreign markets uh, where that prior, you know, uh, maybe in the 70s and 80s, It was uh, you had to kind of live in the area that you worked in because you needed to be able to go and meet with your art directors and things like that. You need to be able to go show portfolios and and stuff. And then the Internet changed all that. At the same time, Photoshop changed that because it allowed art directors to create images um, and that would that could that ended up saving um, a lot of magazines. Uh, it, It ended up it ended up allowing art directors to spend more of their budget to get higher-end illustrators for and, and hire fewer illustrations, um, because then they would create images in Photoshop to illustrate some of the, the lesser important articles. Uh, and then at the same time, the stock illustration, which is the selling of second rights, uh, of illustrations that were already created, um, like stock photography, I think most people listening are probably familiar with those, those terms that really took a, a huge um, hit in the editorial market. And I began looking and, and going, I think that this market, and I, and I wasn't alone, but I, a lot of us were kind of talking and saying, I think this market's gonna be threatened greatly in the not too distant future. And it and it ended up being, you know, five to 10 years later and the editorial market was basically gone. And and so I, I, At the same time, my kids were, uh, we were having, we were starting our family we were starting to have kids and I started to see myself as, oh, I could be a hero at my kid's school because I could illustrate some books, you know? (laughs) So it, it was kind of, kind of a natural progression that way. And I also made a conscious decision to switch over to children's book illustration because I, I remember thinking, um, you know, each, each story is original the illustrations are original to that story they'll never you'll never be able to sell them for second rights to be used in another story um and so the fact that um stories will always be in new stories will always be wanted and in demand means that new illustrations will always be wanted and in demand. so again i made that that conscious um, switch and i'm glad i did i know a lot of editorial illustrators that aren't illustrating anything today because of that
0: do your kids ever help you with your character building do you find that they want to get involved
2: i i think they've probably helped me more in just you know channeling their reactions to things um it's 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 interesting because i have friends who uh illustrator friends whose kids are really into illustration and then there's me (laughs) And my kids don't <laughs> care. Don't want, don't want to do it at all. And I don't know if that's because I tried to teach them too early. Um, but you know, I was, I felt like I was always encouraging, but they just didn't want to go that direction. And so. Um, maybe one day. Yeah. Maybe he, who knows the there, I play, um, my oldest son plays guitar and he's learned how to play the drums now. And so can I play the bass? So we play together, um, that musically, but not, uh, there's no visual artists coming out of my family so far.
0: So, what's your process then for creating an illustration? Where do you find your inspiration?
2: Oh man, I really believe strongly that you 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 get your inspiration constantly coming in, and it's and it's from how you're living your life. And so it's basically, you know, if you're if you're staying at home every day and doing the same things, that's going to directly impact your illustration in a negative way. And vice versa, if you are getting out and doing new activities and doing new things and meeting new people and, and trying to live a full, rich life um, that's diverse in many ways, you're going to have, um, you're going to have the memories and the, the, the ideas um, when you need them for illustrating different um, situations and different topics. And I think having a family is really helpful for that because you know you have you have your subject matter at home you can see how kids react to things and 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 your kids help you remember how you reacted to things when you were a kid they you know they help you um, bring up those memories that might otherwise be lost you know
0: do you ever base some of your illustrations on people you've met, or can't you say? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, not, I don't think I ever really have, um, directly specific people. I'm sure that, that again, it's, it's probably an amalgam of just all the different people that I've met. And, and probably the, the bigger reason for that is because I haven't really written my own children's books. I've been illustrating others. So the characters that I'm being asked to illustrate usually come with a unique set of, uh, circumstances and a unique set of um, personality traits however again they you know I'm definitely channeling things that I've experienced and, and people that I've experienced before in, in creating those characters
0: have you ever had a, a block where you have run out of inspiration
2: um or not yeah and there are definitely times where I've 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 done I've created illustrations for a book and I'm just not happy with them. And I think it's, it's more for, for, me, um, if I'm not really excited about what I'm working on, I know what I'm working on isn't inspired and that I need to dig deeper and, and try again. And there've been times where I've asked my, um, my editors, if I could have a little bit more time so I can rework some, I'm like, I'm just not feeling it. And, and I've even had some of them, uh, one in particular say, well, we like this a lot, you know, and I'm like, I'm just not happy with it. Can I just, I just want to try again? And, uh, cause I'm gonna have to live with this for the rest of my life, you know. This is the difference between working on editorial magazine work where, you know, it the, the magazine is in print for a month and then it's forgotten about. And uh, people tend not to really hold on to magazines like they do books, you know, books could be around for. You know, a lot longer than than we can. So you want to make sure you get it right. You want to be proud of it. You don't want to go and do a school visit and cringe every time you see a character that you knew you could have done better on.
1: So, what about your own books, like Gary's Place? You came up with a story for those, didn't you?
2: I did, yeah. And those, and what I'm, I guess what I'm talking about specifically is uh, those. You know, those were self-published, and I'm talking about working more, you know, with a publisher. I got close once uh, to selling a story to Scholastic. Um, and, uh, they, they said they were going to buy it and then they decided to back out. They thought it was a little too close to another uh, property in the marketplace. But, um, but yeah, I, and I, I do envision myself, uh, writing my own books in the future would really like to be able to pursue that. Um, and, and basically the reason that I'm not right now is that, uh, I just have enough keeping me busy to, to work on between, um, the children's books that I'm working on, the convention schedule that I have with comic conventions, and then with our online school, sbslearn.com. So, I uh, would. I think when one or more of those goes away in the future, like if we, if I get out of one, you know, either selling it or something, then I'll have time to really pursue. Because for me, the 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 um, the problem with writing uh, a children's book. And needing to make money from it is a real conflict of interest. It's like you know, like art to me uh, needs to to flow, and, and it's not like you can put a um, you can't really put a deadline on coming up with a good idea, you know, and refining that good idea. Um, I feel like it's easier to put a deadline on illustration than it is on coming up with the the idea for the whole story. And, uh, I know some people do work that way, but for me, I'd, I'd rather be in a situation where if I sell the story, great. Um, if I don't sell it, it's not going to hurt me financially. Um, so I kind of need to get to a point where I can, I feel like I can just spend time thinking of and working on the stories. And quite frankly, I need to spend time, um, learning from, uh, pros on, you know, how to write a, a really good story. And we've, we've got, a You know, we've got a a woman who did a class for us um, here at SVS um, that just did a great job. And I need to go through her class um, and uh, learn how to write better.
1: (laughs) So what was the inspiration for your books, Gary's Place and Gary's Words?
2: Oh, um, so that was when I was really I was at a time where I was actually in a critique group of other um, author illustrators and I was I was brainstorming every day I was just, when I would go for my, I would, I was hiking a lot at the time. I'd go for a hike for my exercise and I would just keep a little pad of paper with me. And then when an idea would pop into my head, I would just jot it down on the, on the notebook. And then I'd come home and put them in my computer. And I, at one time I had about 50 ideas for books and, um, that just was one of them. I, I just remember thinking that, um, it would just be a really fun idea if this gopher, I think I even saw a gopher on my hike and, um, if this gopher, you know, had this labyrinth of exquisite, uh, dwelling underneath, you know, like, you know, you know, and it was basically, it was basically, um, I wouldn't say lampooning, but, uh, it was a commentary on, on our lives as, you know, our society where, you know, we're we're in the, a lot of us get caught up in that materialistic society where materialism is never enough. You know, there's never enough stuff. There's, if I have a nice house, I want a bigger house. If I have a big house, I want a huge house. If I have a huge house, I want a mansion. So I was thinking maybe this gopher has the same bug, you know, and just can't stop creating, but because he can, he can dig and build his own house. Maybe he just as soon as he builds one room, he builds another. And all of a sudden, he's got this huge thing. And then, of course, in the story, it all gets ruined, you know, as what happens to a lot of us. And yeah, at the time that I wrote that, we were going through a financial meltdown after 2008. We were losing our home, like a lot of people uh, over here were. Yeah. And that had something to do with that story as well. So, yeah, that's why I think, you know, you they, they say you know, the the best stories come from life, come from, you know, where you're writing about your experience. And my experience has definitely crept in um, to that story.
0: Would that be what you say makes your personal work different from what you create for a living then? It's more autobiographical.
2: Yeah, I would say so. I I think so. And I think that um, as far as creating personal work, it's, it's really a chance for an artist to grow and to to try to purposely do things that they've never done before a lot of times with the illustration you're asked to do similar things and you find yourself kind of ripping yourself off because you're like well I already did this sort of thing so I'll change it up a little bit but there doesn't really the excitement isn't really there or you know the art direction is um, you can't do this you can't do this you can't do this you can't do this (laughs) and so um, you end up you end up it's with a certain amount of frustration. I'm, the cool thing about the children's book market is that there's there is so much freedom that when and especially at the higher levels with the with the the major five publishers over here in the U.S. and I'm sure there are some uh, in Europe that are like this as well, where um, they get it and they understand that the that the the author and the and the illustrator have to be given freedom to create art and that art isn't uh, created through committees. The lower ends, you tend to have more, um, you have, you have art directors and editors that with less experience that don't understand this concept. And unfortunately they they become their worst enemy and in, in how many restrictions they place on you. So, so creating personal work is a chance to um, explore who you really are as an artist and to figure out what you what you can offer the world and and i have to say through um it's it's basically through my personal projects that i can i can go back and and look and say this is all my evolution basically came from trying new things and I, and i i see artists that i've had a few friends uh, that when they would when they would do illustration work you know if they weren't actually illustrating for a a particular assignment or a job they would go and do something else they would never explore and do personal work and i remember thinking that's not going to be good for you in the long run and all of the people that i know that have gone that route who really haven't explored they're not working as illustrators anymore so i think there's a direct correlation to the artists who do personal work and success Versus the ones that don't.
1: Can
0: I just ask you, when you are going to write your next books? Do you think you'll continue down the self-publishing route, or go down the traditional publishing route? Because I know you you've obviously done that Yeah, I,
2: I like the idea. I really like the idea of self-publishing because you can you you don't have to write for. So, you know, there are certain things in in the publishing world, in the um, in the traditional publishing world, that you'll never get published, and they they could be very valuable things. To certain audiences and that's simply because those publishers either don't they either don't um, recognize that niche market or perhaps even politically they don't want to touch that market or there's there could be a, a lot of different reasons why they don't want to publish certain types of books um, and people on their own have found success doing that in self-publishing the problem, obviously, one of the major problems with self-publishing is just how hard it is to um, to get the word out and to get enough people to see it to be able to find out if you know it can really gain traction. And so, um, I will probably write for the traditional publishing market in the future uh, because, it, like I said, if I if I have the time to do it and I don't need the money, um, then I think I would probably have a better chance of having a successful book going that direction um but i do and, the, and the, sadly you know the the gary's um gary's place we got a kirkus we got a star review from kirkus and you know i i had so rick walton wrote that but it was my idea so i basically came up with the whole idea for the story and then asked rick to to write it because he i knew he would do a better job of actually writing that book um and he liked my idea and you know I told him in, from the beginning if you don't like the idea, I don't want you to write it because you have to fall in love with this story in order to do a good job with it And he really did he liked it a lot and I think that the, one of the reasons why we got a Kirkus started review is, is from his the way that he wrote it because he definitely wrote it differently than I would have and I think much I think it sounded a lot better than if I had written it um, so it's it's frustrating that we got, the highest review you can get and we got five star reviews from three of the top uh, children's book app sites um and people just don't buy they just don't spend money for apps and we <laughs> a, a quick little anecdotal story on that was we were selling at, at a 2.99 price point we were selling anywhere from two to five apps a day which is you know nothing right um in the app store uh, Apple App Store. And um, then we we knew of this uh, website called Free App Fridays and a lot of a lot of people encouraged us to do that and said you know you put your app there for a few days and you give it away for free and then you gain traction and at that time the Apple Store uh, recognized downloads, how you appear either you know towards the top of the list or the bottom of the list. the The way they auto curate was um, it wasn't through paid, downloads. It was just downloads, period. So free was counted the same as paid. And so we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to put it there for free because it kind of went against our, you know, our <laughs> sensibilities on how to sell, you know, you're, you're there to sell. Right. Um, and you know, we we hired a voice actor, we hired my, my son did, um, my son did the animation. And so we had some expenses and, um, uh, we put it on Free App Friday, and the first day we got about six or seven thousand downloads. So this is going from two or three or five downloads to six or seven thousand, and then the next day it went to ten thousand, and then the following day it went to thirteen or fourteen thousand, and then it went off. That's the idea: is that you, then you go off, you get all this volume. We made it to the top of the list of all the children's story apps. We were we were up on the first page. And then the, the day that we put it back for sale uh, for two ninety nine, we got 20 downloads. And then the next day we got 11 downloads. And the next day we got five downloads and then two. And, yeah, so we just didn't make any money. And at the time we were working on the sequel, uh, Gary's Worms. And same thing happened with that one. Kind of, the writing was kind of on the wall. So it was, it was kind of uh, we finished it anyway, but it was frustrating that we – Um, we kind of knew we just weren't going to make any money with it. And yet, you know, it got all this really good, uh, reviews from Kirkus, which we knew it was a good story. And I think if it had been traditionally published, although it really did, it was one of those stories that, that kind of relied on, um, the, the animation and and the, I, I was really trying to create something that relied on, um, being viewed on a tablet. Versus a book, you know, like a lot of people were doing books on the computer or books for the iPad. I wanted to do a book that you needed to see the animations to understand the story. And, um, so it'd be, it would have been hard to do the same project, although I think it could have been done in a story form and who knows, maybe it'll become a story someday in a, in a storybook, but, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a frustrating lesson to learn but it was a good lesson to learn.
1: So if there's someone listening and they really want to get into illustration, what would be the top tips you would give them?
2: Oh, that's a big one. Um, I would say probably the the, the the single most important tip I can give is, um, you know, work, fall in love with, with the artwork that you're creating and um, and work to make your art the best it can possibly be it, this is going to sound overly simple but i see that one of the big mistakes i see people make is they start down the path of wanting to be a, a children's book illustrator and they get their artwork but let, let, let's say you took um, let's say you took all the, the 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 books that are published professionally published uh, through traditional publishers each year and you, you know, you, you rated them on a scale of, uh, one to 10 and, and, you know, one being, you know, elementary or primary school quality and 10 being the the highest illustrator out there. You know, you'd, you'd probably find that in that scale, the, the illustrators that are getting published, the lowest is probably a seven and, or maybe even an eight. And then the, the top is a 10. So there's, you know, there, there's a, there's a high scale to get to and I I'll see illustrators get to a four or five on that scale and spend a lot of time trying to market their work trying to get the attention of publishers and they're just not going to they're just you know it it costs a publisher um, anywhere from you know 20 to to a hundred thousand dollars to publish a book I mean it, it depends on Obviously, the, the publisher and the, the print run and all that, but I mean, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars to to publish a book, and they're just not going to gamble that on someone who has it, doesn't have a, a portfolio that's proven. So, it's it's futile to spend your time marketing work that isn't gonna isn't gonna be considered. Um, and so, the the best thing that illustrators can do, I think, is work really hard. Uh, understand that it's a, a lifelong pursuit. That there's, you know, yeah. You know, a lot of times we put these, um, we we put these uh, goals and these um, demands on ourselves that we reach a certain amount of success by a certain amount of time. And, you know, for some skills, uh, in some jobs, that might work. For art, I don't think it does because there's too many variables. Um, you know, there's, there's stylistic considerations. There's, there's uh, some art styles require more time uh, learning academic drawing. Some require less. And so there's, there's just too many variables to be able to um, say by this time, I need to have this much success or I'm going to quit. And I see, I see people on social media saying that all the time. If by this time next year, I I don't have enough success, commercial success as an illustrator, I'm going to, go and do something else and to me it's tragic because this is the thing that they love to do and uh, there are a lot of people who find their their first successes in publishing in their some people find it in their 20s some people find it in their 30s some people find it in their 40s 50s 60s probably even 70s and so um and maybe even 80s i don't want to exclude anybody out there (laughs) but but um if, if that's what you want to do, then just work on it. And it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, and some people will say, well, I have to make a living. Well, make a living doing something else, you know, have a day job and work on your passion uh, when you can and take your time doing it. And eventually you'll get there. It's, it's really is a time in thing for most people. It's there's a direct correlation to the amount of time spent and the quality of work.
0: And I suppose building a following is is huge, isn't it as well? And I think you've done this very well. And you've you've also got your YouTube channel, which I've been looking at, and it's great, by the way. Do you find that that um, channel helps you get illustration work?
2: Um, I, you know,
0: or, or do you think it's more about building? A I following? think it's
2: it's probably more about building a following. Um, but it's um, it 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 may it might have gotten me work. I I don't. Um, Unfortunately, I don't ask a lot of times where, and I should be better at this. I, I Sometimes I do ask where people found me. Um, I don't think YouTube is necessarily one of them. However, um, and, and the reason that I started the YouTube in the beginning, it wasn't the reason that a lot of people start YouTube channels today. Um, I think I started mine like eight, seven or eight years ago. It's been a while. And um, the reason I did it was actually to make my life easier because I had a lot of people that were um, emailing me with questions and I started seeing the same questions and I thought well, this isn't efficient for me to type out this, this long answer that's the same answer so if I just put it in a video form put a title on it then I can send a link next time somebody asks me this question so it was more a, a way of creating an FA a, a video version of FAQs on on my website and then it, after a while, I started to realize, oh, you know, that it, it actually could be a marketing tool in some ways. I know that it's gotten me um, speaking opportunities. Um, well, you know, it's it's so I've I've spoken at a lot of different uh, um, co- conventions and conferences and some colleges and things like that. And I'm sure that it's helped in that regard because people can see, oh, he can actually talk and, you know, carry a concept for a while. And so, but uh, as far as marketing for um, illustration work, I don't know that I've gotten much from that.
1: You mentioned in one of your YouTube videos that you have an illustration agent. Well, I don't know if you still do now, but would you recommend that an inspiring illustrator tries to find an agent or should they just represent themselves?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So as far as um, I have, a um, so my, my current, illustration rep is Ilozu, um, uh, Muhammad Danawi, And, um, they've got me some really good work in the past. I don't work with them that often. Um, and I think that it's, it's the type of work that they're, I think this is more of the type of clients that they get aren't really the, the type that, that want me. Um, sometimes I turn down work from them just cause it's not the right fit. But, um, but they've done really well. Uh, they do not represent me in the children's book world um, because I, was, I already had that, um, that part of my illustration business going when I um, got on with them. But I, um, as far as giving advice on having a rep or an agent, I think that an illustration rep is not anywhere near as important as it used to be in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I think there are probably some illustration reps out there that do really well for their artists. Um, I, I know of one in particular where, and I know some artists that they have that they get a lot of work from their, their rep. Um, I also have a lot of rep horror stories. This is, this is an hour or two hour long chat just on reps, (laughs) but, um, but as far as agents go for, for literary agents, I think that, um, you could almost make this the case that if you're writing children's books you need to get an agent. I think that that is 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 totally different and the reason for that is that the in the publishing industry back in 2008 we went through the recession through 2010 11. The publishing houses went through a, took a huge hit on their their revenue and they laid off a lot of um, their staff. And um, so at that time Editors and I and I have some friends who are editors who we've talked at great length on this, so I, I know kind of what happened behind the scenes, and they said, yeah, so right overnight, we were doing the work of two or three people, and so instead of they they stopped looking at uh, a lot of manuscripts and and illustration work on their own, and they started calling up agents and saying, who do you have that you know illustrates could illustrate this, or you know, I'm looking for an illustrator, or I'm looking for a story that has this subject matter. Do you have anything? And so the, the basically the, the agents uh, became um, kind of a leg arm of publishing overnight more than they had been. I mean, they already were fulfilling that role to some degree, but I think even more now. And um, if they haven't hired back the, the, the numbers, they've hired some back, but they're not back up to where they were so I think that the industry now is 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 become used to relying on agents. So I think if you don't have an agent, you're uh, probably hurting yourself if you, if you're writing. You know.
0: Yeah. You've you've got a podcast as well, haven't you? Called Three Point Perspective, which, by the way, I really love. Um, and you host that alongside Jake Parker, who we've interviewed before, uh-huh. and Lee White. And um, I was listening the other day, and you had an episode, which was the one where you were all three sharing some of your most embarrassing <laughs> stories in illustration. And I was chuckling all the way through. I loved it. Can, can you share one of yours with us today?
2: Which one do you want me to share? Do you, do you remember one? Which one, the one you find
0: you find most uncomfortable to talk about?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well... So the one the one that I think is the funniest to me is the one that I had with Arizona Highways Magazine with the, with the tortoise.
1: Yeah, that one was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it, and it goes
2: to, it's, it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of this conversation with the design. and um, And sometimes we draw things and we don't see the big picture. We see what we've, we see the details and we see the little areas of the drawing. And so that's basically what happened to me on this um, situation was I got a call from the Arizona Highways Magazine. This was back in probably in about 95, 96. And they said, uh, would you would you like to illustrate this story? It's at the end of the magazine. And it's, it's basically just a lighthearted story about how people will go to the zoo down here in Arizona and volunteer their time and take care of different animals. And so in the story, it mentioned that, um, these these helpers these volunteers would go into the tortoise area tortoise cage and they would wash the, the turtles so they I guess they get muddy and they look better in the zoo if their shells are clean and so they go in there and clean them and take care of them and, and in the story it said that the tortoise actually liked it you know and they they get fed while they were being cleaned and stuff and so I drew this woman and she's it's hard to describe visually, but she's she's uh, she's got her arm around the tortoise shell, so you can't see one of her arms, and the other one's kind of holding up the neck. Actually, so, I'm sorry. She had both hands around the neck. She's kind of giving the tortoise a hug. And just the way that I had drawn it, it, it looked a little weird. And, and, and so I get this call from the art director, and keep in mind, so the, the tortoise is holding, or the, the woman is holding this, this tortoise, this long, uh, neck, (laughs) coming, kind of coming from her waist, because she's crouched down, and the tortoise head and neck is coming right at the viewer, and she's kind of holding on to this thing, and it, apparently, (laughs) it looked a little phallic, and so the, I get this call from the, from the editor, and she says, hey, Will, so we got your sketch, and, um, did, you know, we like it and all, but there's just, we were wondering if you could make some changes to it, and I said, sure, you know, what do you want me to change, and she's like, well, do you see how, you know, the neck is kind of coming straight at us, and I'm like, yeah, do you see how it's a little bit awkward, and I'm like, no, I don't see it, you know, <laughs> And she's going, well, she, well, it's, it's the, the, the length of it is kind of coming up from her groin area. And it was like, all of a sudden, you know how, you know, in the movie when, when all of a sudden you, you the image that you're looking at gets bigger, you know, and you hear the <laughs> rah, rah, rah sound, you know, like I saw it all at once. And then I go, Oh my gosh. And, and I was, I was on speakerphone, but I didn't know it. And, all the the staff was in there because they wanted to hear my reaction to this when I finally saw what what they were seeing in it. And it was it was bad. It was like, it, it, you know, if you, you put if it was an image, if you put it on Facebook and you said, hey, everybody on Facebook, what do you think of this? You, you'd get destroyed, you know, and uh, so that what they had a good laugh at my expense and that was i got i turned beet red and they but they they thought it was so funny you know they were just dying laughing i'm like i'm sorry they're like no we just loved it you know like just had to change it a little bit and you know like yeah I'll, I'll change it so
1: so do you teach your students in sbs learn how to draw tattoos <laughs> <laughs>
2: i don't <laughs> i'd love to
1: see
0: that picture is it is it published anywhere
2: it's not and and I have looked I have looked for it and I haven't been able to find it I unfortunately we went we moved twice um, since I I did that and there was one point where I really cleaned out my studio and threw away a lot of old art and I'm pretty sure it got thrown away with that it's one that I would I would, lo- I would joyously put it on Facebook today <laughs> to tell that story. As a lesson right. as well,
0: because I suppose it's true what you're saying. You get so lost in the detail, and sometimes you need to sort of spe- step back and see the whole thing, don't you? But it's oh, a yeah. oh, lesson for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Well,
2: I had a uh, a student fr- from our uh, online school who sent me an image to critique, and he almost – uh, it's a very similar thing. He had a mother rabbit, and she's squatting down, sitting like rabbits do, and her legs are open and her, th- her three little bunny children are facing away from the viewer. She's facing the viewer. The three little bunnies are facing her, but their head level is right at her crotch. <laughs> and it just, looks, it just looks so bad. And he didn't intend anything, you know, but when I looked at it, I was like, you know, so <laughs> he didn't, he didn't, I know you didn't intend this, but this is what it looks like. And he had the same, oh my gosh, moment. He just didn't have it in front of a bunch of art directors you know he had in
0: front of me (laughs) well we've had a similar experience we won't go into into too much detail but in our um on our facebook page i think somebody had put a sketch that they'd done and and they obviously didn't realize what it looked like It, it was a perfectly innocent sketch but tara and i could see something completely different and what we could see we we had to take it down, didn't we, Tara? <laughs> we didn't we, we didn't tell her, but we thought she obviously just didn't... Ha- she literally had no idea what it looked like. And my husband, I said to, I, I said to my husband Paul, "Can I, uh, is it me? Can you just have a look at it? What is it?" And he just he just laughed and said, "Well, if you can't see it, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm right. I've got to take it down." But poor girl, she had absolutely no idea. Poor girl, she
1: might know who it is now. No. It's a long long time
2: ago <laughs> now that we're now that we're talking about these my sister and i have a picture of this i'll i'll email this to you afterwards because you'll get a kick out of it but she uh teaches schools teaches uh primary school and she um had a student had a student uh, it was a halloween time and the, the students were coming and dressed up and one of the parents made an elaborate costume of a gumball machine So it turned the the little kid into a gumball machine. And, but the problem was, and he would, he had his arms were inside, put a coin in. He could give you a gumball through the little slot thing, you know? And uh, she took a picture of, of a girl reaching into the slot, but the mom had put the slot right where his groin (laughs) (laughs) is. So it's just. It it was such a cute, it was such an amazing costume, probably one of the best homemade costumes I've ever seen, but it had a huge design flaw and, and it it just goes to show like, you know, we get, we, we get caught up in the details and this is everyone, this is our natural way of doing something. We, and that's why I'm so, um, so, um, why design is so important to, to me to teach is we want to start by looking at the big picture and making a master plan before we really start in on those details or else these unfortunate accidents happen, you know, where it, it just ruined, it ruined the whole costume. And the the mom obviously hadn't really envisioned what it would look like. And I'll send you the picture.
1: You're obviously inspiring a lot of people out there. So which artists or illustrators have inspired you most or who do you admire?
2: You know, I was, I was thinking about that, um, and uh, the the list is so long. I'm going to give you I'm going to give you some of the ones that um, uh, influenced me early on, because the list would be you know hundreds and hundreds now, um, and I don't want to name any current ones because I just feel like I'd be leaving too many out. But what really got me started was um, artists like Lane Smith. And these are children's book illustrators primarily. Lane Smith, Chris Van Alsberg. Um, Steve Johnson, I uh, really, really looked at his work a lot in, in school. Um, Mary Grand Prix, uh, Gary Kelly, who's primarily an editorial um, illustrator, but he also illustrated a few children's books. And of course, uh, N.C. Wyeth. I think I N.C. Think Wyeth is underestimated. I think a lot of people think, well, you know, because he was kind of in the beginning of the illustration scene, here in the states, that that's why he's famous, but his his work stands up today. His his designs are so solid, um, and I've I've actually learned to appreciate his work even more over over time. But there's just so many. Um, I, I one thing that I really like is uh, I really am inspired by a lot of different styles uh, that are very different from my own. So it might be surprising for people to uh, know some of the people that I really appreciate because they don't look anything like myself.
0: So where can our listeners find out a little bit more about you?
2: Um, I I basically have created my, my website is my hub. So I have links to, you know, everything like my, my comic book or my comic convention art and my um, online school and my um, podcast and my blog or my YouTube channel and everything uh, at willterry.com. So just myname.com, will Terry, and uh, yeah, that's basically where everything is.
0: Well, we'll link to you on the um, bottom of our show notes okay. anyway. Great. Tara,
1: did you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to ask if you could tell us a little bit about SVS Learn and what. Yeah,
2: you so we um, we basically all all three of us, Lee White and Jake Parker and I, we all um, had been teaching at universities, and uh, we got to a point where we. Just decided that we could probably do more and do and do more of what we wanted if we kind of started doing it online. So we just we um, we basically focus on children's book illustration, but we also have some comic book stuff, and we want to pursue and do more comic book stuff in the future. A lot of it is general um, art education, as far or visual art education, um, like the the things that you would find at university. Um, the types of classes you would find at university, They're, most of them are self-directed. We, we do have um, some interactive classes. A lot of those fill up really fast, and so we can't always guarantee um, a space in our um, interactive classes. Uh, but the, the, the neat thing about it is it, it really solves a problem for a lot of people because the price is so much cheaper because we're not accredited. We're not, we don't offer degrees. It's really for people who just want to learn, and uh, and want to get into publishing, and that's what we've really focused it on. And we have classes and on uh, any basically all the aspects of, of creating the artwork, to the business side, to you know running your own per, your studio, you know, um, coming up with ideas, just just the whole the whole aspect of being a children's book illustrator. Or a comic book illustrator, and um, we we love it because it, like I said, it breaks it it brings the price down. It makes it available for people who don't have a university in their area, or can't afford to go to university, um, or don't have the time and and can fit, you know, doing it at their own pace. Um, It's not for everyone. In that, um, you know, some people I think really need the motivation of being in a, a classroom, a physical classroom setting. With other people, um, so we don't really say that it's a it's an alternative, a complete alternative to um, college, because it's it's like comparing apples and oranges. It's very different. Uh, a lot of colleges use us as a supplemental material for their students, so it's it's uh, I don't know. It's it, there's, there's a lot of people, a lot of different schools that are that are coming out doing this sort of thing, and I think technology is great because it's just allowing people to. Um, have access to what they didn't have access to just a few years ago
0: well obviously you are a really busy man with all these things that you've um, got going on so we really appreciate that you took so much time to talk to us so it's been so good of you to come on we really really appreciate it and um, I'm guessing you're gonna have to go and do some illustration now
2: I got a few (laughs) things to get done but I really appreciate um, you having me on and um, you guys asked really good questions too
1: we've (laughs) loved having you Well, thanks again and enjoy the rest of your day.
2: You too. Thank you.
1: Bye. Thank you
0: so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, perhaps you'd like to share it and leave a review for us on iTunes. Back soon.